theory or practice, it's a constant battle when you're teaching. I'm Dr. Joy Patterson, the Director of Educator Preparation at Governor State University and the College of Education. And I'm Dr. Amy Viaquia, Governor State University Assistant Professor of English Teacher Education. In teaching and learning theory versus practice, Dr. Joy and I will duke it out over whether theory or practice wins the match. Yeah, I can't wait. So whether you're a teacher, an education leader, or looking to learn more about the field, you can hear from industry experts on education topics. We invite you to be the judge as we box it out. Stick around to find out who wins this week's match. Good morning, Dr. Joy. Good morning, Dr. Amy. Uh, how are you doing today? I may have some background noise because we have approximately seven inches of snow and expecting another seven inches. So please excuse me if there's any background noise. Same here. We've got a lot of deep winter wonderland going on, but that's okay. Uh, we are working from home and we are inside where it's warm. And our conversation today will be enlightening. It will also, I think, get us fired up. I think so too. One of the things that we will talk about is research, action research. And action research is not just for higher education. Action research is for all educators, whether you're in elementary school, whether you're a secondary teacher, action research actually leads to real change. So we're going to talk to an expert I know on this topic, but also we want to make it applicable to those of us who are practitioners. And we all need to be examining our practice, not just at the university level and not just us and doing our research with local school districts, but how do we translate research into examining our classroom practices, but then moving policy forward that can really effect change? So I'm excited to introduce Dr. Damon Williams, who is a visionary and inspirational leader. He's also one of the nation's recognized experts in strategic diversity leadership, youth development, corporate responsibility, educational achievement, social change, and organizational change. He received his PhD from the University of Michigan Center for the Study of Higher and Post-Secondary Education, where he specialized in the area of organizational behavior and management. He received his master's degree in educational leadership and his bachelor's degree in sociology and black world studies both from Miami University. In 2013, he was awarded the coveted Inclusive Excellence Award of Leadership from the National Association of Diversity Officers in Higher Education and a leadership commendation from the 13 research universities comprising the Committee on Institutional Cooperation for his landmark contributions to diversity equity, and inclusion strategy globally. 
as a scholar in residence for the American Council of Education Fellows Program and American Association of Colleges and Universities Greater Expectations Institute, he launched his work nationally, helping hundreds of colleges and universities to transform their efforts in liberal education, STEM completion, improving student graduation rates, campus climate and inclusion, leadership development, faculty diversity, and curriculum reform. And it all starts with the ground level work he's doing with research. Welcome to our podcast, Dr. Williams. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Glad to be with you on your podcast. Yes. And thank you for taking the time, especially with our inclement weather. You are my friend. We'll get to that later. We're just happy to have you as a friend now. You have been nationally commended on your inclusive excellence in leadership. And we at GSU were honored to have you as our guest on campus. You please tell us about the kinds of research you conduct and how you obtain a broad picture of what is happening in education. Thank you so much for that question. We conduct a number of different types of research. I think everything we do is research-based. And so I've been engaged in trying to understand how complex organizations build capacity to advance diversity, equity, and inclusion broadly defined for the better part of two plus decades now. And those studies have been quantitative in nature. They've been qualitative in nature, been case study in nature. They've been analysis of national data sets. So kind of across the board, looking at a lot of different types of work. At the end of the day, though, always doing research with a purpose of how do we uh, skew towards greater insights and understandings for those who are vulnerable? How do we eliminate equity gap? How do we work to accelerate how we prepare all of our students for a diverse and global world? And how do we recruit, retain, support, and advocate for those who are diverse, whether students, faculty, and staff? So those issues are always at the core, but we use a lot of different methodologies to get there. I really appreciated listening to you talk about your research when we met during GSU's speaker engagement. You have some massive research projects that encompass cross-sections of data, including statistical numbers, like you said, quantitative data, interviews, focus groups. But what can you say about data as the input to the conversation and not the output Those were two words that I really latched onto when you were speaking with us. We have the good fortune to do the DEI work at the K-12 level, at the higher education level, in the corporate sector, the uh, social sector, so across the board. So we kind of see the entire ecosystem of uh, folks doing this work. And what we find is that, unfortunately, those who are gathering the data uh, on the, the, the lived experience of diversity, equity, and inclusion, campus climate studies, organizational culture studies, audits of capacity, various different efforts to understand gaps and challenges. One of the things that has happened is, in some ways, the gathering of that information has been performative to the real focus on meaningful change efforts. And what I mean by that is just becomes data that we gather, we put on a shelf and data that we gather and we maybe publish for the campus or for a community, but it's viewing the data product as the output versus the data product as the input. And what I mean is that when you're doing research for scholarly reasons, the data product is the output. You want your book, you want your referee journal article, but when you're doing the the research to drive change, 
then you have to understand that the climate work, the focus group work, the surveys, the database studies, the equity analysis, those things are the beginning of the real important conversation that you need to have to drive new change outcomes. So it's an input into that process, not an output of that process. And I think in particular in the academy, we've been investing, if we look at the broad scope, been investing millions and millions of dollars in climate studies that are faulty in methodology, that are faulty in how they're positioned to be sparks of change. And I think that's something we need to address moving forward. Let's talk about some real research and some numbers. There is a quote in your book by Barack Obama, which states that two-thirds of jobs require more than a high school diploma, and yet one-half Americans have that level of education. Furthermore, Americans has one of the highest dropout rates in an industrial country. 50 years ago, Dr. Williams We were the model of education, and you know that since then, we've really fallen behind. What are your thoughts about why this has occurred? What's happening, and how do we begin to change this? You know, it's a great question. We are facing a a massive educational deficit in this country where, candidly, large swaths of communities have been left behind. And We've seen that really accelerate, particularly during the COVID-19 pandemic, as an entire generation of young people, learning has been interrupted. And it's in those moments of inconvenience and interruption that we see the fault lines of challenge in terms of educational opportunity in our country. Those young people who were able to continue going to school in person, in particular, who are at various different types of private schools, We're at institutions that had the ability to open some public health safety and protocols. Those young people in the year of the 2021 academic year, they accelerated. And there were many communities where those students were at home doing virtual learning. And candidly, the virtual just wasn't good enough for any number of different reasons. And some students just stopped attending altogether. So across this country, the majority of young people have underperformed in standardized tests that are only used, I think, as an input for conversation, not as a predeterminant of where you can go in life, but they are a good baseline at times, have illustrated challenges since the pandemic. So I think that we're in a space now that there was some general challenges that President Obama noted in that quotation. But where we are now is the inequities have deepened, particularly for young people in economically vulnerable circumstance, which also oftentimes aligns to urban environments and rural environments. And whether Black or Brown or children of any background, uh, what we know is that inequity anywhere is a place that we need to address it. And I think we got some deep opportunities to do that in this country. Amy and I, we've talked about this before. I have a nephew in high school. When the pandemic hit, he used his cell phone from March to June to attend school. And it had a great impact on him, a great impact. It was his freshman year, and it was very difficult for him. And the family had to put together some resources so that that next academic year would not be the same. In contrast, Amy and I live in Indiana, not in Illinois, where all kids went to school. And I was just asking my daughter, who's been teaching for 12 years, about my grandson, who's in fifth grade. Has his learning been impacted? She said, no, he's actually excelled. He's Mm -hmm. been in school the majority of time 
during the pandemic, as well as Amy's children, her son, has been in school the majority of the time. So it has made a huge impact of them being in school. And I just wonder, is this an issue of leadership? We know it's an issue of equity. Is this leadership, is this by design that we constantly see marginalized people falling further and further behind? That's a powerful story. And fortunately, we all have too many stories that are reflective of that. And when I was at Boys and Girls Clubs of America, and I had the good fortune to be a senior vice president and chief education and youth development officer for all the clubs around the world, one of the major projects that we worked on some years ago was what we referred to as the Digital Youth Development Project, which was how do we create an online virtual clubhouse experience for the nearly 4 million young people that we served. And one of the pieces of language that we used was that the new digital divide was not whether or not vulnerable communities were being connected to the internet. That was the old digital divide. The majority of folks are connecting. The new digital divide is defined as those who are connecting using technology in the service of learning with adequate equipment to do so. And what this pandemic illustrated was that there was a technology insecurity in addition to a food and a housing insecurity, which is creating great vulnerability and fault lines in what is a connection economy. An economy in which more and more our ability to earn is gonna be defined by the knowledge and ability we have to connect with information, connect with people, connect with knowledge, tap into research, work in virtual environments, and that gap deepened here now. At the same time, one of the things I think we oftentimes do, those of us who skew towards issues of equity and issues of inclusion, issues of justice and issues of diversity, what we call JEDI, is that we oftentimes always see the glass as half empty versus the glass as half full. And so while there's been clear challenges and fault lines that have grown deeper, at the same instance, we know that there was some great innovation that happened during this time period where companies and community colleges and universities and K-12 schools created new partnerships and new opportunities. And a whole generation of young people have access to laptop computers and Chromebooks that just candidly wouldn't have had them before because some places did get it right. So I think there's uh, some things we can learn about innovation. I think there's some things we can learn about shared resources. I think there's some things we can learn around shared destiny and shared fate towards the future. I love what you're saying about innovation. In the pandemic, the switch to online and teaching and learning, it's what propelled us forward in having this podcast and to share these ideas. But it's also causing schools, teachers, higher education to really examine our practice. Let me ask this. In research, whether it is on the scale you have conducted or action research at the classroom level, What are the hard questions we should be asking? I think one of the most important questions we should be asking as educators is who are who are we and how do we show up in those environments and asking questions about how our identities show up in our environments and how those identities create bridges of connection with our learners, how those identities create more challenges of disconnection with our learners. I think we should be asking who our learners are in our classrooms today. I think we should be working to understand what it is that they're dealing with outside of the classroom, what types of complicating factors are a part of their life, potentially, what makes them happy, what makes them tick, what does a walk in their shoes look like. I think that the more empathy and understanding that we have 
about our students and the greater understanding that we have of ourselves, then I think the more inclusive the learning environments are that we can build for, for, for our students to be a part of. And I think that level of self-reflection hasn't always been a part of the process of teaching and learning, particularly at the collegiate level, but even at the K through 12 level as well. I think there's a lot of self-understanding that'll go into creating stronger bridge building in our classroom and stronger learning environments. So I want to just try to be more pragmatic because we have a lot of educators listening to us. Amy and I, we really strongly value partnerships with uh, P-12 schools. As a result, we have a number of initiatives, a lot of great initiatives. And one school in particular we were partnering with, we implemented a lot of great best practice initiatives in the school, worked out really well. We attended the Bill and Melinda Gate Conference with the school. We even started a research project with the state, very engaged. And then it got to the point where we were doing more research and more action research to actually see change in the school. And the school pulled back. They were like, we don't have the bandwidth. We don't have the energy for that type of focus. They're in the grind every day. They see what's in front of them and they're working on issues on a daily basis and not time for action research. How do we bring teachers in the fold of embracing research to be able to bring these things to scale? I know it's hard. They're busy enough already. Yes. You know, I think that our teachers have one of the most important and difficult jobs that exists in all the world. You think uh, their role is incredibly challenged. I, my heart goes out for any number of different reasons. And one of them is their job, particularly in this pandemic era, has become more dynamic, has become even more expertise laden, being able to not just be a strong teacher, but also to be a strong teacher online and to move dynamically between both environments, in addition to the day-to-day complexities that they always have had to, to deal with. And oh, by the way, now, we're going to put even more pressure in the cooker because we got a whole generation of young people who are slipping behind because of the pandemic and and we need you to accelerate learning with them. So I think one of the most important things that our teachers can do is I think it's important for them to understand the vital importance of self-care and the vital importance of having well-defined coping approaches for dealing with stress, time constraint, uncertainty, fear, fatigue, what we call stuff, uh, having different systems and rituals that they put in place to do so. It's one thing. A second thing is I think that teachers, and I'm not talking necessarily about unionized connectivity, but I think that the degree to which they bind together to really share their stories with one another, of resilience, share the stories of coping and how they're able to navigate, I think it strengthens this sense of belonging and this sense of not being alone in the journey of the work they're doing. I think that's important. If I flip it and say, what are some of the things that schools and school districts might do? A couple of things I might offer is number one is how do we create economic benefit for students for the skilling up and the learning up that they're going to have to do in the current moment to help us to overcome the learning challenges that we're dealing with? Right now in the private sector, in the service sector, they're paying $1,000, $1,500 signing bonuses to sign people to come and be short order cooks, to work in restaurants, because we just don't have the, the, the labor that we need. And I think that economically, we've got to make some real investments in our teachers in terms of giving them some, some economic remunerations for the summer learning 
that we're asking them to do for the evening, special certifications we're asking them to do and make it a financial benefit for them. But I also think it's important for us to do so in ways that really acknowledge the good work that they're doing and show a greater value to it. Those are really big ideas that are really challenging to do. But the final point is that there's billions of dollars coming down the pipeline for overcoming the the COVID learning interruption that's going to be hitting school districts across the country. And I think that the more that that money can actually touch the the faculty, it can be a part of showing the valuement for their work, not just the financial pieces, but the valuement for the work and, and letting them know that their contributions really matter. They are worthy of investment. I just want to quickly talk about something you mentioned, and let's talk about wages and teacher retention, because that is the number one reason why many teachers leave the profession. And when I was provost at my previous university, I created and led a diversity hiring task force. We had very few minority representation in a school that was recognized for, it was Hispanic serving and African-American serving. And I quickly learned that those of color who were the most qualified did not want to work for the wages in higher education. They were going for principal and superintendent positions. What are your thoughts about attracting and retaining intellectual capital of highly qualified minorities in education. Sure. And I'm glad you qualified it in education because I think that different disciplines have different pathways to opportunity, a different clarity of pathway to opportunity. So if you're a returning learner coming back to get your master's or um, ultimately your PhD rather or EDD in educational leadership or curriculum and instruction, there's clear pathways where you can leverage that in school administration and district administration, even in the the emerging and and bustling for-profit industry, which is adjacent to the academy at the for-profit institutions or working with different types of uh, educational or youth development companies, which are aligning to various types of components of the educational sector. So there's different pathways. I think you can see them. I think for the academy to retain folks, one of the things I always say is that money, job, and location. Let me say that again, money, job, and location. So we can't do very much about the location, but we can do some things to optimize in it from a retention perspective for diverse folks. So the degree to which the institution, the college or the university can help new BIPOC faculty and staff to understand where the resources are in their community to help foster community amongst BIPOC parts of the fa- uh, faculty beyond the school, partnerships with other institutions, those things can become very viable, particularly in, in environments that are not like governors. See, governors has got some strategic benefits because of location, because you're in the Chicago land area. I mean, when you're in Boone, North Carolina, up on the mountain, you know, and there's not a lot of folks there, or Oxford, Ohio, or Storrs, Connecticut, or you name the place, you know, you got some location challenges. So I think one thing about the location piece is sometimes it can be some benefits, sometimes it can be some challenges. Another piece of this that we talk about is the money, right? And I just talked about money before. So I think that institutions that are serious about retention, institutions that are serious about recruitment, you got to oftentimes have some dollars that you can use them to strategically enhance the offer to recruit and to retain top talent. And if you're valuing diversity, 
as a part of the top talent that you want in your faculty. Now, clearly the diversity doesn't trump, can you do the other parts of the job? But if the diverse, if the other parts of the job are there and diversity is valued because you really want to have a diverse faculty because you see benefit in that, which I do, then you should have some strategic dollars to retain individuals, whether it's your science faculty, it's your technology faculty, it's your diverse faculty that brings some richness there. So I think having some strategic dollars are important. And then the other piece of this is the job itself. We're in the midst of what's referred to as the great resignation as more than 19 million persons have resigned from their jobs since April of 2021. So that number is staggering in its magnitude. And many have have left jobs and gone on to the unknown without even having another job. And so we're in the midst of that. But, but some of the why that sits underneath that that was unexpected in many ways is number one, feeling as if the organization didn't value their presence. Number two, feeling as if their supervisor, their direct one-up didn't value their presence and value what they brought to the table. And then the other piece of this was a lack of belonging, a lack of sense of belonging within the organization. So those things all connect to this notion of psychological safety and being able to be in an environment and contribute to that environment in ways and feel like you're a part of that environment in ways. And ultimately, the highest level of psychological safety is feeling as if you can challenge that environment in safe ways. So folks don't feel that. And that leads to disconnectivity and senses of othering. And when you factor in that, all the stuff, the stress, time constraint, uncertainty, fear, fatigue, all the mental health dynamics associated with being on the front lines. And oh, by the way, if you're in a red state or a blue state, what that reality could look like is radically different for educators today. I think people are making some really tough decisions. So I think on the retention side, I always try to think about it in terms of money, job, location. What can I do within each of those different levers to enhance my ability to retain? On the personal side, if I'm the candidate, if I'm the individual, I'm asking those same three questions. Am I happy in this job? Am I fulfilled in it? Am I being compensated in ways that allow for it to meet my economic equation of me and my family? And from a location perspective, is this a place where I can live and grow and me and my family can in healthy ways? And so I think you got to be asking yourself those questions constantly. I think many of us don't ask those questions frequently enough. And as a result, we stay mired in situations that don't necessarily make us happy keep us safe psychologically, and also allow for us to grow mentally, physically, and spiritually. We are talking to Dr. Damon Williams about his research, his findings, and how we can apply those in the work we do today. I want to return to those findings and what drives you forward and what you help institutions do. And that's your work with diversity, equity, and inclusion Now, for our educators, what is the starting point for K-12 teachers and college instructors who want to be change makers for diversity, for equity, and for inclusion? Thank you so much for that question. You know, I think for educators, there's a couple of things that become important for them. And one is, I think, to have an understanding of how all these issues have to be thought about and considered. So kind of a working framework. One is, I think that whenever we're talking about inclusive excellence in the classroom, we're talking about one, how do you as an educator show up in that classroom? What are your unconscious biases? What are your stereotypes? What is your experience with different communities, whether they be BIPOC communities, whether they be economically vulnerable communities, whether they be Spanish as second, first language communities, whether they be 
communities that are diverse in terms of gender identity. What is your experience with those? What are your triggers? What makes you uncomfortable? Do you become uncomfortable talking about race? Do you become uncomfortable talking about gender identity? Do you have experiences having conversations of, with cultural humility with students and learners who are different than you? Understanding that they may have insecurities that are tapping into what Claude Steele refers to as stereotype threat, stereotype vulnerability. Do you understand yourself, but also do you understand those young people that you're teaching? So I think one of the things educators have to do is to get up to speed on that. The other piece of this that I think becomes important is how are you infusing diverse ideas diverse perspectives into the content of what you're teaching. Whether you're talking about this from a humanities perspective, from a history perspective, perhaps even from a science, technology, and engineering perspective, you've got any type of historical context associated with your teaching in the STEM-related areas. It could even be viable there. So one is the self-exploration and also understanding your students. Number two is how we infuse diverse ideas into our content of our curriculum. And number three is what's our pedagogy and how do these issues affect the methodology you use to spark learning? In the classroom, when you're putting together your students to work in groups, for example, are students self-directedly choosing their groups or are you randomly choosing their groups or very demonstratively putting people into groups based on your observations of their learning tendencies or whatever the case may be? What we know is that when students are allowed to choose groups, they choose groups of similarity. They choose groups that look like them. They choose groups that are in their perhaps student organizations or in that come from uh, the same types of backgrounds that they've come to understand about themselves. They choose similarity. And what we know is that sometimes that doesn't necessarily maximize learning opportunities. So one approach could be to randomize the classroom environment in some important ways. I think another important thing that oftentimes is missed here is how do we also think about the classroom environment and how we're going to navigate that environment, particularly when we're having difficult issues that may emerge around the history of slavery, the history of racism in our country, various different ideas that maybe are dealing with contemporary topics like the insurrection in Washington. You know, those are flashpoint topics. So one of the things I think is really important, particularly in those classrooms, is how are teachers co-constructing the classroom community norms with their learners? In what ways are they talking with them in the very beginning of the class about how we're going to talk about difficult topics here, how we're going to respect one another, how we're going to have one voice speak at a time, how when we speak to these issues, we're going to talk about is issues and we're going to talk about perspectives, but we're not going to talk about people. That's stupid. You're dumb for that idea. You know, we're not going to do it. I mean, I think it's important for them to negotiate classroom norms for teachers to negotiate classroom norms with their, with their students, particularly in those courses where they're going to be dealing with hot button triggering topics like affirmative action, slavery, history of racism, civil rights movement, contemporary issues like the insurrection, like presidential politics. Those are very triggering conversations. And I think it's important in particular for those classrooms to really establish the norms of the community between the teacher and the learner very early on. So one is to understand self and what you bring and how you show up. Two is to understand our learners. Three is to infuse this stuff into our curriculum. Three is to really look at our pedagogy and our approach. And last and definitely not least is how we manage the classroom dynamic. And one example is setting community norms. So on that same line of community norms, another triggering topic is gender. And you mentioned that earlier. 
while you were at Governor State University, I shared with you, I don't know if you know that that was me sending you messages, but I shared with you my challenge of making people feel valued. I really want people to be seen, to be valued, because I know where I came from. And so that weighs heavy on me, but I've been called out by students before of saying I'm being insensitive. And I chalked it up to being, excuse my age and where I come from and my generation. Part of that is true. I'm educated, you know, and I can't continue to use that. And as I'm growing, one of the things that you offered to me that I just want you to share with our listeners, you offered me the word friend. And I just think that that is so powerful that when I don't know what to say, when I don't know how to address you, to share that I value you, that I love you, that I respect you, at a minimum, I can call you friend. Right. You know, one of the things that is happening and it's and it's accelerating uh, exponentially is the national conversation around gender identity and gender identity expression. And what we know is that sexuality, sex, gender, those are all topics of difference that relate to this evolving and in some ways ever evolving kind of way of thinking about gender identity in more complex ways. And, you know, one of the things we talk about is sex is one's biological combination of chromosomes and hormones and secondary sex characteristics and internal and external sex organs. You know, that's sex is, you know, male or female. And uh, one's gender identity is an individual's emotional and psychological sense of gender. And there's a lot of variance and a lot of complexity in how we think about gender in the 21st century. Individuals could use the gender pronouns a he, him, his, a she, her, hers, they, them, theirs, zers, de, zim. You know, lots of ways that individuals are thinking about gender in ways that are non-binary and more complex and, and a more complete illustration of the the human condition from that perspective. But we also have gender expression. So you've got sex, you've got one's, which is one's biology in terms of male, female, or hermaphrodite, you've got gender identity, which is an individual's emotional and psychological sense of how they define themselves, maybe not how the world sees them, but how they define themselves. And then we've got gender expression, which is the ways in which an individual presents their gender in the world. I present my gender as male. I present my gender as female. I present my gender as gender non-binary. And then you've got sexual orientation, which is who individuals are attracted to, who they have relationships with, who they partner with. So four very different ideas around this kind of evolving concept. And I think one of the places where we see is that we know the LGBT community is one that experience is more likely to experience harassment. The transgender community is more likely exponentially to experience harassment and threat. And there's a lot of pain, I think, there in those communities because of those dynamics. And there's also a lot of pain of coming to an understanding of who you are, perhaps in a world that doesn't know, understand, or embrace it. And so sometimes when you're in pain, you can have a a lashing out, even when someone is maybe trying to address you appropriately, but just doesn't have 
the right language or just doesn't quite know your pronouns or is just not comfortable using pronouns in the way that they're being used more frequently, particularly with our millennial and our Generation Z communities. And so one of the things that we always talk about is if you don't know a person's gender pronouns, then just call them friend. And using friend as a general descriptor is one that allows you to stay in the right of trying to value and affirm individuals. And this belief that we have in micro-affirmation is so essential to affirm individuals. And one of the ways we send a very uh, powerful micro-affirmation to folks is to not assume that it's a he, him, his, or she, her, her, because you see them, but it's to perhaps gender expressing in a particular way, but it's to use the more general terminology of friend. And then that creates an immediate connectivity. And more than likely that person is going to see that as a signal of allyship. And I I know that was a lot, but that's a really complex issue. And I wanted to be very explicit with folks because Many of our communities are still grappling with this idea of, again, of sex, gender identity, gender expression, and sexual orientation. And this is one of the areas I've personally been leaning into to grow as a ally and to grow as a educator in this, in this way, because this is a new terrain, even for those of us who have been doing this work for a very long time. I really appreciate what you said about micro affirmations. And you mentioned that whenever you were speaking at Governor State University, and whenever you talked about micro affirmations, you were also saying, show your mentors and mentees the love they deserve. That prompted me to reach out to my advisor at my former university where I graduated that doctoral program and said, I feel I am part of important work at my university, and you were instrumental in getting me there. The response really touched my heart because she said, thank you so much for this message. You have no idea how much I needed to hear that today. And how often do we miss those opportunities when we're thinking of someone or we want to thank someone and how fast a simple text can be to affirm and show that love. And I wanted to thank you for prompting me to do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, Your words just spoke to me in that moment. I just want to thank you for being with us here today, for the treasure of your words. Are there any last words that you want to share with our educators who are listening? And we, we define educators very broadly on this show. First of all, I want to thank you for having me and, and give me a chance to share some of the learning from my research and my practice and my partnership with organizations and educators across the board. I like to say that I'm friend to thousands of DEI champions everywhere. And, and a part of it is what we share, but a part of it is how we listen and how we grow and from others. And the thing that I would probably offer to all of our educators out there is to find safe spaces to renew yourself find safe spaces to recharge your battery, find safe spaces to heal, find safe spaces to recover because these last two years have taken so much out of all of us. And what I've come to understand is that if we don't find those safe spaces of mental, physical, and spiritual renewal, we can't be the beacons of educational energy and innovation and leadership that our students and our communities need. And All of us need to do that. And so I guess if there's a final point I'd make to affirm everyone is to really invest in that self-care, is to know that you are enough to overcome and to do whatever is necessary on any given day. 
And the third thing is to say that when you're dealing with challenges and you feel as if the nihilism is creeping in, you feel as if the moment is becoming too dark and too challenged, we hold on to three things in our greatest places of pain and inconvenience. One is we hold on to our faith, however you define it. Two is we cleave to our relationships because there's infinite power and renewal through our relationships. And three, we bedrock ourselves and our values because it's our values and our character which will allow for us to find our pathway through anything as long as it is bound with our faith and long as it is interwoven with the relationships that love and matter and invest in us. Take good care. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to Teaching and Learning Theory versus Practice with Dr. Amy Viaclia and Dr. Joy Patterson. We hope that you have been inspired by this conversation and will join us again as we talk about trends in education and perspectives on teaching. We welcome your comments and feedback. What conversations are you interested in hearing? We'll leave it up to you. Our listeners, did theory or practice win the match? I think it was theory probably this time. Uh, practice. Until next time, we're Dr. Amy and Dr. Joy. <laughs>